We're continuing our series on forgiveness today with the text from John, just the last couple words of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Listen for God's word. <clears throat> then each of them went home while Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, all the people who came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the, laws, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. The word of the Lord. What was Jesus writing? What was he writing on the ground with his finger that day? Immediately before and immediately after proclaiming, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her, Jesus wrote with his finger in the dirt. The her was a woman caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses, according to the scribes and Pharisees, meant that that woman should be stoned. The reality of the first century, life meant this woman, any woman, really had no rights, no self-determination. The question might be asked, since it takes two at least to tango in, in adultery, where's the man? And the focus of this text is not on the scribes and Pharisees, not on the crowd, each of them holding a stone, not on the woman, but on Jesus writing with his finger on the ground. What was Jesus writing in the dirt? Here are seven possibilities. It could be reasonably argued, if one did not know Jesus, that this was some elaborate trap that Jesus sprung on his inquisitors. Lure them in to some situation where they're all amped up looking for their own version of justice, and then turn the tables on them and reveal the evidence, voila, of all their prior wrongdoings and humiliate them. How do we know that this isn't what Jesus did? Well, because Jesus is Jesus. When reading Scripture, we do well to look at all of Scripture through the lens of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and let that Spirit guide our discerning reading. This is the Jesus who taught and healed. This is the Jesus who offered peace to those nearby and peace to those far off. This is the Jesus who wept over broken cities and over broken lives. This is the Jesus who went to the cross and beyond to show the powerful love of God. This Jesus does not spring traps. This Jesus does not humiliate. 
even Pharisees. But then what about the possibility that Jesus was being argumentative, making a point-counterpoint argument against the scribes on every detail of the law? Could this have been kind of a legal brief, what he was writing in the dirt? Actually, that sounds more like what we would do than what Jesus would do. Jesus answered their arguments on the law with God's new commandment, marked by this love that goes everywhere in a broken world. As obedient children of the Enlightenment, we so often believe situations like this are about more information. If we only could get the right facts, if we can only craft the best arguments, if we can only show how much knowledge we have, then we'll win. We win. Who loses? Winning and losing is not in the economy of the kingdom of God. This was not what Jesus was writing in the dirt with the woman caught in adultery before him, surrounded by men with stones at the ready. It may be possible that Jesus wrote names, just a series of names, as much as he knew people in the crowd, names of wives and daughters and sisters and grandmothers belonging to those in the crowd. Anytime we believe that we're a free agent without connection to or accountability to the relationships in our lives, we're apt to do something foolish or hurtful or tragic. God created us for life together. If I only live for myself, I am free to form opinions, and there are no consequences. I can just act on my convictions. But we, none of us, are created as free agents. We all have been given by God a web of relationships to whom we are connected and to whom we are accountable. In John's gospel, the woman caught in adultery is merely a pawn as the authorities seek an angle to bring a charge against Jesus. The woman is an afterthought. In God's world, no person ever is an afterthought. Maybe Jesus wrote down the names in that dirt of the people closest and dearest to those in the crowd as a way of reminding them of that. Whatever Jesus was writing, maybe his words were held up as kind of a mirror to look at our fragile lives. Men holding stones ready to pounce don't seem fragile, but the truth of our lives is we all live fragile lives, utterly dependent on the breath and grace of God. A couple of years ago, Howard Stern was interviewing the actor Bill Murray, the Bill Murray of all the comedies and the antics. Near the end of the interview, Howard Stern asks, is there something that you question in your own life, like why I haven't found the great love of my life? Mr. Murray audibly exhaled and let the moment pass in silence. And then he said, well, I think about that. I do think about that, that, um, you know, that I'm not sure what, what I'm getting done here with my life on this earth. What stopped you from getting in touch with you, asked Robin Quivers, uh, Stern's longtime co-host. Again, Bill Murray took a 
deep breath and said, what stops us from looking at ourselves and seeing ourselves is that we're kind of ugly. If, you really, if we really want to look hard, we're not who we think we are. We're not, uh, we're not as wonderful as we think we are. Do you think Jesus could have written words in the dirt that day that uncovered the fragile nature of each life? Anne Lamont says the three most terrible truths of our existence are we are so ruined and so loved and in charge of so little. Maybe Jesus wrote words in the dirt of grace and love and hope and forgiveness that uncovered that truth and comforted people all at the same time. It's also possible that Jesus wrote the names of other people children, women, men, who had died, to remind that group of their shared grief that we so often push beyond, and to try to stop one more death. Naomi Rosenberg is an ER doctor in Philadelphia. Recently, she wrote a piece, How to Tell a Mother Her Child Has Died. First, you get your coat. I don't care if you don't remember where you left it, you find it. If there was a lot of blood, you ask for somebody to go quickly to the basement and get you a new set of scrubs. You put on your coat and you go into the bathroom. You look into the mirror and you say it. You use the mother's name, you use the child's name. You may not adjust any of this at all. After the bathroom, you do nothing before you go to her. You don't make a phone call, you don't issue medical orders, you don't talk to a medical student. You never make her wait, she is the mother. When you get inside the room, you will know who the mother is, yes, I'm very sure. Shake her hand and tell her who you are. If there is time, shake everyone's hands. You will know if there is time. Never stand. If all the seats are taken, that's what the, the armchair of a couch is for. You never make her wait. She is his mother. And now you explode the world. Yes, you have to. You say something like, Mrs. Booker, I have terrible, terrible news. Ernest died today. Then you wait. You will not stand up. You may leave yourself in the heaviness of your own breath. You may notice the racing of your pulse. You may notice the shoelace on your shoes, but you will not stand up. You are here for her. She is his mother. If the mother has another son with her and he has punched the wall or broken a chair, do not be worried. The one that punched the wall or broke the chair will be better than the one who looks down and refuses to cry. The one who punched the wall or broke the chair will be much easier than the sister who looks up and then closes her eyes as they fill. Security is already outside the room. When they hear the first loud noise, they will come in. They will know that. No, you will not have to tell them. They will know about the family room in the emergency department in summer in North Philadelphia. It's all right. They will be kind. If the chair cannot be sat in again, that's all right. We have money for new chairs every, every summer. If he does not break your chair, you stay in your chair. If he does, you find a new place to sit. You are here for the mother, and you have more to do. 
whatever Jesus wrote in the dirt, it softened a group of hard-hearted people and reminded them of the gentle touch of grace and the comfort and the relief of forgiveness. I don't know if words can do just that. I trust that Jesus' words, even written in the dirt, can do exactly that. What did Jesus write in the dirt? A sixth possibility is that he opened to them a larger world and summoned them to it. C.S. Lewis once described an image of hell as a vast gray city inhabited only at the fringes with rows and rows of empty houses in the middle of the city. These houses are empty because everyone who once lived in them had gotten into an argument with their neighbor and moved on out. And then they got into another argument with their new neighbors and moved farther out. And everyone fights and moves, fights and moves. And they flee farther and farther from the center of the city, leaving empty streets full of empty houses. Lewis says this is how hell got so large. It's empty at the center and only inhabited on the fringes. The confrontation the scribes and Pharisees have brought to Jesus, using this woman in their intrigue, ignored the larger world of tragedy and pain and injustice we know is going on in Roman-occupied first-century Palestine. I wonder if Jesus wrote in the dirt the first-century equivalent to Tulsa, Charlotte, Ferguson, Cleveland, Baltimore. Did that crowd really want to take all their anger and indignation out on one poor outcast woman when their world was facing hardship and strife all around them? One scholar comments on this text, Jesus gently invites and encourages us in living a life of humility and clear-eyed assessment, both of ourselves, but also of our community. While we are contentedly tempted by the world's propensity for dividing humans into us versus them, good guys versus bad guys, the guilty versus the guilt-free, saints and sinners, in truth, we're all a little bit of each. In truth, our life's work as followers of Jesus is learning and practicing gentleness and discipline and humility and forbearance. Our life's work under the gift of God's forgiveness is shaping our own life as disciples, not judging other lives. What if Jesus' words written in the dirt that day were a call to a larger life and a deeper empathy and a wider awareness of pain and suffering and of injustice and heartbreak? and a call to that very crowd to do something about it. The Reverend William Barber is president of the North Carolina NAACP, and he wrote an editorial in the Charlotte media this week where he said, I'm a pastor, I will not condemn grief. As a young man, I was trained as a lifeguard, and I learned a long time ago that when people are drowning, their instincts can kill them, and can kill anyone who tries to help them. 
If a lifeguard can get to a drowning person, the first thing the lifeguard is to say is, stop struggling. Let me hold you up in this water. I will get us to shore together. What if Jesus' words written in the dirt was the call for all of us to start being lifeguards? There's no time to throw a stone when people of all backgrounds of pain and all experiences of injustice are drowning. Well, here's what I know, I think for sure, about whatever Jesus wrote in that dirt that day. He reminded people who they were as loved and forgiven children of God because that's what Jesus' whole ministry did. They were told that they were not created by God to stone a woman. They were created by God and given the name Beloved. The best documentary of 2012 went to a movie called Searching for Sugar Man. It's the true story of Sixto Rodriguez, a Detroit folk singer who had a very short-lived recording career in the early 1970s. He released two albums, and they sold terribly in this country, and he gave up, and he dropped into obscurity, never to be heard from again. Unknown to Rodriguez, however, those two albums found their way to South Africa, where they were adopted by the anti-apartheid movement and became an inspiration for hundreds of thousands of South Africans. There's just one catch. The people in South Africa who loved this music thought he was dead. There was a rumor going around he had committed suicide, despondent over his failed music career. It wasn't until the late 1990s that a few fans sought to find out whatever happened to him, which led them to find Sixto Rodriguez alive, working on a demolition crew as he had for the last 40 years in Detroit, having no idea he was beloved by thousands and thousands of people in South Africa. So they find him, and they invite him to South Africa to play a concert. 40 years after he cut two bad albums that didn't sell. 40 years of working demolition in obscurity in Detroit. 40 years, which leads to the most touching scene in the movie when he arrives in Johannesburg and he steps out onto the stage to thousands and thousands of cheering fans and every one of them knows every word to every one of his songs and sings right along with him. So who's the real Sixto... Rodriguez, the Detroit demolition worker, or the music icon who helped nurture a revolution for freedom? Who was that real woman caught in adultery, a pawn of the powers that be, or a beloved child of God praying for the opportunity for a new life? And who were those people in the crowd, stones at the ready? Amped up killers ready for their own vigilante justice, or husbands, sons, friends, colleagues who desperately needed the experience of forgiveness before they did something rash. What I know for sure is that whatever Jesus wrote in the dirt, he reminded all of them that they were loved 
forgiven children of God. He wrote the truth about them, that they were not created by God to stone a woman. They were not created by God to continue in adultery. They were all created by God and given the name forgiven. I wonder what words Jesus would write in the dirt at our feet today. The, the box under the sermon in the bulletin. Imagine that's your plot of ground. What's Jesus writing in there for you this morning? Take a moment. Think about the places in your life that are strained or broken or joyful and wondering or questioning or amped up or strangely distant Places that are parts for love. Places that are depleted of hope. Places that are desperate for forgiveness. What was Jesus, what's he writing to you today? What is Jesus writing to our world this morning? Jesus is saying to you, your name is forgiven. Your name is beloved. Now go, the world is desperate for these words.